As, as Eric said, uh, we do hope that over the next few weeks, just extend us some grace as, as we do run into probably some bumps and things. And, and if you see something, I, I, I don't mean to sound like the TSA, but if you see something, so you can say something, okay? Like, like when you look around and maybe, like, like this week, we, had a, we found out we had a problem with one of the toilets in the women's bathroom, the, the first stall in there. And so, something like, let us know. Don't just be like, I'm walking away from that because... <laughs> And somebody else got to experience that. So let us, so we can fix some of the things and work on some of the things. Just, again, as I said, be nice. Have some grace about it because we're going to need a lot of it over the next few weeks. Um, I really appreciate uh, a lot of you guys have looked for places to park that weren't in the main parking lot and down below. You're awesome. That's great. Uh, but I saw poor Clifford and Mary. He had to walk up here with his cane because he, he was like, I'm not going to park in that parking lot. And so he does a great thing. But I'm like, that's a perfect place for him to park. So Clifford and Mary, feel free. The rest of you, walk. <laughs> hey, first thing, I, I caught, again, told less service, their practice. You know, the first service was that one in the building. So, woohoo! Yeah. Welcome to Elman if you're new. There, apparently, somebody is. Uh, so, there, there are Bibles in the seat backs right in front of you. If you don't own one, please take one. Uh, if you forgot one, you can use one. Everybody uses them to kind of... I don't know, it's like you get nervous about something and you mush them all up and then you stick them back in there, but whatever. Take it home if you really want to have So you can own one. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. You know, We just say, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. What you'll get is you'll get the sermon notes that are on all the communion tables throughout the room in here. Uh, in there, you get some questions and notes to go a little bit deeper. But in your smartphone, you will get all of those, including announcements and the verses and everything that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Luke Chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, and it says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that we would be a people who remember, like Mary, to call upon your name. That we would speak of the great good things that you have done in our lives and the places where we have stressed or don't understand the beginning from the end. We would trust you because we would understand and know that you are good and that you would lead us and that you would guide us and show us the places where we are to be and go. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are heading into Christmas. By the way, is the fan on yet? I don't know if we look. Yes? No? I gotta tell you, there's lots of lights right here, and it's a lot hotter than the old place. Even though the old place was hot, so I figured I should ask that question before I get going, because you don't want to be like, "I need a hanky." Woo! <laughs> Not one of those. So uh, we're gonna head into Christmas, and I thought it'd be fun to look at various different family dynamics uh, that holidays kind of bring out in our lives. We just finished the Book of Ruth, and the Book of Ruth is again all about our stories within God's larger narrative of His story, but it also involves family. They, they come together as a family. There, there's a child that is born that eventually will lead to God's son, Jesus. And Christmas can be hard because where it falls at the end of the year, and there's all kinds of stuff that kind of hit us at the end of the year, and that brings out the best and the worst in people. And we all have people in our families, and how do we deal with the hard people? And if you can't think of hard people in your family, you are probably that person. Okay, just let you know. But how do we see ourselves in the midst of all of this also in God's family? That's what we're going to deal with over the next few weeks as our first series 
in this building before we hit January and do a 16-week-long thing that looks back and helps us to understand the gospel in all of our lives. We're going to do this series, which is very, very practical. At least I hope it is. That your family could be pretty messed up. When we talk about being a family as a church, you're like, oh my goodness, I need to run away from that because that's not for me. But what you should see is that God wants to restore our view of family, what it was always meant to be. So maybe we go out of this place and we begin to live out what family was meant to be in the lives of the family around us. It's kind of like that Lilo and Stitch cartoon, my favorite Disney cartoon, because you got the monster and all he all he wants is a family, but he doesn't understand that that's what he actually needs. All of us need a family. A lot of us, because our families many times have been so poorly modeled to us that we don't even understand the idea of what family is supposed to be. Uh, family, they bring pain. It brings fear. We let one another down. It's hard to love difficult people. And so God, throughout the scriptures, reminds us that we are all called to be family with one another and then to live out the gospel and the good news in other people's lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at four different people or family types as we go through this. And that could be hopefully people you will all know at some point in some place in your family. And because we all know people who are like this. And my warning for you is that if your life is perfect, you have no issues with anyone, we'll just see you in January. You'll be like, sweet, I'm out, right? And, and you're gone. These messages are not for people who have no difficult people in their life. If your family is full of relational maturity, if you've never had difficult conflicts and no one is sarcastic and no one talks too much or drinks too much or talks in a way you never have any idea what they're actually saying, so you just... Like that, that the whole time, if no one is too opinionated, if there's no divorces and everyone's kids have always been perfect and there's no addictions and no job problems and no insults and no crying babies and no one owns any cats, well, okay, these messages are not for you. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, right, you're still here, it's for us. And in reality, there's only a few ways to deal with difficult people in our lives. One of those is called murder, and we don't recommend that, Okay. Jesus actually said, if you want to murder somebody, well, that's an issue with your own heart, not really with that other person. So how do we help people who want to change? Well, it's not by walking up and saying, you drive me nuts, you need to change, because that never goes over well. What it starts with is us understanding God's call in our own lives and understanding who God calls us to be as his people, as part of his family. And when we live that out, I think people will see what the gospel is meant to be, and then things and relationships will begin to change around us. So we're going to look at different families and different situations that brought about various things in the scriptures. Today we're going to talk about stressed out family or stressed out people. You may not know anybody like that. I am one of those sometimes, and so you've got to ask, what causes you stress? Last Sunday night, if you were here for the Agape, I read you this thing that I wrote in my message because I write my messages pretty far ahead of time. And so last year I'm writing this out and I'm sitting on my desk and this is what I wrote. We're coming to the end of this year. That was last year. And as I write this message, I have no idea if Element will even still be here. Nope. (laughs) We moved. Are we in a new building? Are we hopping from church site to church site? Did our rent get to stay where it was? Are we paying three to four times what we paid last year? I don't know. I'm very stressed. I hope it doesn't come out in my delivery. Boom. There you go, right? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. 
Um, as we start the Christmas series and season, we're going to start, start talking about the conception of Jesus and how he was born because that is a stressful situation that I am sure caused a lot of uproar in a lot of people's hearts and lives. The way we view it today, because of Christmas, like Mary is going to have the Son of God, an angel shows up, says all these wonderful words. We think, oh my goodness, this is such a blessing. It's so amazing. People will sing Christmas carols about this forever. All is calm. All is bright. But do you think that's how that really was? Real world situation, real person this happened to you, is that how it was? Not at all. Not at all. Just like your family at Christmas, there are stressed out people. Mary and Joseph are stressed out. And I think they probably lived in one of the most stressful situations any of us probably have ever seen. This is not the happy, serene picture on our Christmas card. So, Matthew 1, verse 18, imagine these words. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that means before they had sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a way, a way that a man and woman makes a baby is they come together. It's, that's a nice way for the scriptures to say it, much nicer than our culture says it. So Mary and Joseph, they have not been intimate at this point, and now she's pregnant. How does that go over? Not well, right? What does she tell Joseph, her fiancé? What does she tell her parents? She could be as young as 13 years old at this point. What does she tell her community? God did it. I heard that one before, right? Matthew 1.19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So who finds out Mary's pregnant? Mary. It's not a trick question. Okay, Mary finds out, but she tells Joseph. And what you learn is this is a godly couple. They're from a rural town, and they were engaged. In this culture, if you really wanted to get unengaged, it could take upwards of a year because engagement was that serious. Engagement was like being married without the benefits. Unengagement would be like getting a divorce. It's why at this point, even though they're not married, it still calls Joseph her husband. Now, we, we all probably know couples who get engaged. When they get engaged, they feel like it's okay to go a little too far sexually. Like they're making out and, oops, how'd that get there and things like that. There are good reasons why the scriptures say that we are supposed to wait. It has nothing to do with being old-fashioned or prudish. I could parade hundreds of couples who I have talked to throughout the years and they'd walk across this stage and they would tell you the same thing. We made a mistake. God said to wait. We really wish we would have. We didn't listen, but we wish we would have. And if you're under relationship and you feel like you are too far, there are deacons and elders here today and we'd love to talk to you without judgment. You can come and talk to me. We can talk about how to step this back. But sometimes people go too far and someone ends up pregnant. Usually the woman. (laughs) Mary is pregnant and what do you think the community thinks about the situation? All of their neighbors. What do they think? Well, they think that Mary and Joseph were out fooling around in Joseph's workshop. He's like, hey, you want to see my woodworking tools? If you know what I mean. Right? So they all think it's Joseph's baby. But Joseph knows it's not his baby. It's not. That's a lot of stress. An angel comes and he speaks to Mary and tells her, you're going to give birth to Jesus. Joseph hasn't had that happen yet. Mary tells Joseph, and we're, we're like, oh, wow, it's so amazing. The Son of God, it's great. Look at Joseph's angle, right? You wait and you wait and you wait, and you haven't even most likely even kissed her yet, but you got a ring and you got a date, and she tells you she's pregnant. How do you respond? How dare you, right? What? Who is he? How, how dare you? She seems so godly. Like, legally, according to Jewish law at this time, Joseph would even have her killed. How does Joseph respond? Being a just man and willing to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. 
He's saddened. He's probably got a broken heart. He's probably a little embarrassed, like, really? Someone else really is, um, wasn't good enough for you to wait for? But he still doesn't want to hurt her. And I told you last year in the What in the World series that Mary probably says, Honey, it's okay. We can still get married because I'm a virgin. And Joseph is probably like, I don't think that means what you think it means. Because <laughs> right? you got a, you got a baby in you at, at this point. No, no, no. Remember Isaiah 7.14, the prophecy, the virgin will be with the child. That's me. Ta-da! I mean, seriously, what do you, how, many, how many high school girls would pull that if they can get away with it? No, 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 I'm an Isaiah 7 girl right here. Woo, that, that's me. Joseph is like, man, that, that is a hard sell. That is a hard sell. Like, we may have both grown up in the trailer park, but even I know when something's far-fetched, Mary. You're going to stick with that angel story? But Joseph, it's going to be the son of God, an angel told me. So he's going to divorce her. What does that mean is going on between them? It's an awful lot of stress. There's strife. He doesn't believe her. They are fighting. They don't see eye to eye. They think if the other person only saw what they see, then the other person would then understand. Sound familiar? Sound like a lot of marriages today? Yeah, a lot of stress. We know Joseph is hurt, but what about Mary? How do you think Mary feels in this? The guy who she thought she could trust, who she's supposed to spend the rest of her life with, doesn't believe her. He's going to leave just when she needs him the most. How do you think she feels about that? There's all this infighting, so Mary's hurt. And this is why when we're in the middle of stressful situations, it's always good to get outside counsel because we can't see clearly when we're in the middle of it. Sometimes when you think you are so right, all you do is hurt everybody else around you with your opinions. It's good to get outside counsel. Now, that counsel should not be your buddy who just thumbs up every stupid thing that you say. It needs to be someone who's like, no, you're a knucklehead too. What did you do? And then can speak the truth into your life as well. That what you, that's, what, that's what you need. And believe it or not, guys, I am pretty high strung. <laughs> okay. I am also a verbal processor. And when something bothers me, I will talk about it and 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 talk about it. It drives my wife crazy because my wife is an internal processor. So she will think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it. I'm like, say some words. <laughs> and when she does, it's because she's actually thought about it. How many of you are married to verbal processors? Yeah, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry because I am one. I know how horrible it is to actually be you. When, when, I'm, when I'm talking, I'm just trying to figure something out. I could say a thousand words just trying to figure out lunch, right? And my wife, though, she'll be like, think, 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 and she will say three words. There, there are sometimes I am so over, all over the place, and she will take somebody else's side and be like, how dare you? Then I realize she's actually right. Now, it doesn't matter what kind of processor people are. Imagine Joseph and Mary. They go, maybe they go out and they talk to somebody about the issue that's going on between them. Everybody they talk to is going to have their minds made up because you only get pregnant one way at that time. One way. So what has to happen? Well, an angel now has to appear to Joseph. Has to explain, no, no, Mary is still a virgin. The child within her is the Savior born in the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. Matthew one twenty. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. He shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in a real-world context, not just biblical narrative story, what happens now? Joseph has to go back to Mary and apologize. Imagine that. 
a dude going and apologizing. A lot of dudes apologize, right? But actually changes his actions after the apology. And how does Mary respond? I don't know. I know in my marriage, if I was to believe a stranger over my wife, even an angel from heaven, it would not go over well. Okay, so I don't know what's going on there. So Joseph obeys God. He will go on to marry Mary. (laughs) I think it's funny. Um, He doesn't sleep with her until the child is born. And there are some religions out there who will say that Joseph never slept with Mary. But guys, come on. He has suffered enough. All right? He's suffered enough. You should get married as a virgin. If it's your 20-year anniversary and no sex, there's something wrong. Come talk to us about that, too. We will work on that in, in your life. We know Jesus has brothers. There's a book in the New Testament named after one of them. Joseph becomes the adoptive father who raises Jesus. So Joseph stays with Mary. They live in a small town. Do small towns gossip? Yeah, exactly. Yes, they gossip. You live in Santa Maria. It's not a small town anymore, but everybody knows everything about everybody. It's, it's, they all, they all gossip. And so, you know, none of these people in the town get a message from the angel, only Joseph and Mary. And so Mary probably becomes the, the town tramp or slut or whatever it is who sleeps with Joseph. Either way, it's not good. And Joseph is either the fool who believes her or the guy who can't honor her enough to keep it in his pants. Either way, it's not good. And Jesus will grow up with that stigma attached to him his entire life. That's stress. This happens because Mary and Joseph are from a place called Galilee. In ancient Israel, Galilee would be like the Bible Belt in America. It's some place that's stricter than other parts of the country today. It would be the opposite of San Francisco. If you ask people where the most promiscuous place in America is today, they now respond with the words San Francisco. But this is Galilee. They have strong standards in regard to sexuality and what is appropriate. Later, in John eight nineteen, the religious leaders will say to Jesus, Well, where is your father? Essentially, this is the not a nice way of say, saying, At least we know who our fathers are. And then you go to John eight forty one. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. They say those words. That stigma follows him. Your mother is the tramp, and your dad is the idiot, or the guy who couldn't wait. And I mean, eventually Jesus does defend his parents. He will look at these religious leaders and say, yeah, I know who your father is. It's the devil. So he does, he does defend them. But, but this unconventional birth, it's a blessing to us as people because Jesus lived a sinless life. But at this point in this place, this is a traumatic event that brought stress throughout the course of Mary, Joseph's, and Jesus' life. Do you, I don't know if you can just see that a little bit and what that would feel like always being judged by everybody else around you because of something that wasn't even your fault. Anybody? Oh, oh, I don't understand it all. So Mary and Joseph, we're told, have to go to Bethlehem for a census. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Just If you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, two over, boom, right there. Uh, Luke 2, verse 1. You have to go there for this census. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 3, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea. So the census takes place. They now have to go to Bethlehem. This is because that's where they're from. It's called the home of their fathers, the place of their fathers. One of the reasons they're in Nazareth is probably because of the Roman taxes were so high that Joseph had to go and find a job somewhere else like Nazareth to find a job that he could pay for and raise this son who is going to be born and take care of his pregnant soon-to-be wife. A census is about numbers in the Roman kingdom, and it's also about taxes. Anybody ever been stressed out about taxes? 
Oh, yeah, see, now, now we're hitting home. So they're going to this census. Mary goes, and she is pregnant, very much so that she will give birth while they're there for the census. Now, it's not a law. Mary doesn't have to go for the census. Joseph could register for her and him both, but she goes anyway. And there's a lot of speculation by commentators on why this is. I think it's because the town they lived in, there's so much gossip. She doesn't want to stay there by herself without Joseph with her. So she decides to go. They get to Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. Jesus is born. You know the story. It's Christmas. Okay. Uh, so after Jesus is born, then they go to the temple. And they give what's called the mandatory sacrifice for the birth of this son. And what they give is they give this thing called doves. Doves. This is the poorest of the poor gave doves. Anybody ever been stressed out about money? This is Mary and Joseph. They're poor. They're marginalized. They are, they are judged by their neighbors. That's who they are. That Christmas family should remind us of all of us at some point, even if their circumstances are a bit different. We have a lot of stress when it comes to a head when family and money and all these things are involved. Christmas is by far the most expensive holiday. If money is an issue, it just gets worse at Christmas. The top five most expensive holidays, according to MasterCard, so they would know. Number five is Halloween. Uh, people spend an average of $75 on Halloween. I, I guess that's what I spend on candy. I would think if you've got to buy like a, like a dress-up thing, it's got to be even more than that, but whatever. So, and now, if you count the Super Bowl as a holiday, that's actually number five, and then and Halloween goes to number six, but whatever. Uh, four is Easter, food, clothes, gifts. Three is Valentine's Day, and that's skewed because of jewelry purchases. Uh, number two is Mother or Father's Day. But I know, oh, hey, yeah, it's so high. Really, in reality, though, they say that uh, people spend 40% more on moms than dads, so sorry, dudes. Uh, <laughs> And then number one, number one is Christmas. People will spend 10 times more on Christmas than all other holidays combined. The things that cause most people stress are, is this. Crowds and long lines, gaining weight, getting into debt, gift shopping, because you never know what to get that hard-to-get person. All right? Traveling, seeing certain relatives, having to attend parties or events that you really don't want to, having to be nice. You know what holiday has all of those things in them? Christmas! Right? Christmas! How have we turned the most amazing holiday about the birth of Jesus, bringing redemption to the world, into the most annoying, expensive, stressed out season of all? Because it's what we do with everything. We have taken this beautiful thing that God has done, and we turn it to be all about ourselves. It's like I always say, we are not good gods. People are not good gods. So what do you do? Well, this is what the scriptures teach us about what we're supposed to do in this. If you're stressed out, if you lose the meaning of Christmas, what can you do? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to answer the question. Before we really hit anything else, you've got to ask yourself this question. How does your stress affect others around you? Does it, does it make you nicer to be around, more calm? Are you more loving when you're stressed? Are you more apt to turn back and look at the gospel? Oh, things are going really crazy right now. I better focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or do you like, gospel of who? You know, you just, and you go kind of nutty. A lot of us kind of forget who Jesus is in the midst of our stress. We must be a people who come to the place where Mary and Joseph came to, trusting in the hands of a faithful God who has called us to himself. There are some things we do about stressors in our lives. Work less, eat better, spend less. But there's also some things you can't. When people judge you, there's just some things you can't do about that. Unless you're just a jerk, you need to be nicer, then you can actually do that. But through it all, how we see ourselves in Christ is going to be the true indicator of how we begin to live out our lives, how we respond to all these stressful situations. 
In the scriptures, we're reminded over and over and over who God has called us to be. That God has called us, and He has saved us, and He has adopted us as His children. Our identity is meant to be as the children of God. We are in His family. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8.16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. These promises go through the, out the Old Testament and the New. Why does God in his scriptures continue to remind us of our identity? Because in the end, it will affect all that we do. It will affect everything that comes into our lives. Too often when stress happens and begins to overwhelm us, we lash out. You know, Jesus never once promised we wouldn't have stress. What he promises is that he will walk with us through it. He promises the opposite, that he will grow us in the midst of those situations. In John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have peace in him by trusting in him, by surrendering to him, laying our will at his feet. And understand that all that we are comes from all that He is. We believe in His promises. We are the children of God. One of the most prominent promises in the Scriptures is where God says, I will be with you. God says that over and over and over. And that promise of I will be with you, that is not a promise of no stress and no hardships. God is promising, I will work in you and I will grow you through those times. We are His children. We do not need to be afraid because He's with us. But God also makes this promise. 366 times in the Scriptures, you don't need to be afraid. The angel even says it when God put the baby inside Mary. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to come up that are going to make you want to be afraid in this, Mary. But don't be afraid. Why? Because God is with you. And when we have fear, we tend to run headlong into stress because we stop trusting who God is. Let me actually show you this just for a second. Uh, how our not understanding God walking with us through hardships and just thinking the Bible is all about God getting us out of our troubles. Let me show you how this is skewed how we see the scriptures. Jeremiah 29.11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In 2013, that was Bible Gateway's most shared verse. Having a bad day, you know, fighting with your wife, you got some stress. I know the plans I have for you. Sounds so nice. But that verse is written to Israelites in exile, in Babylon, in captivity, because God sent them there to discipline them. That's who that verse is written to. And God says, I'm going to be with you, and I will grow you even in something that stinks. This promise was also of a future and a hope. This was something the original people that heard this promise would never even see because it didn't come about for another 70 years. Too often we read these things in the Bible, it's like, oh yeah, I had a bad day. I know the plans. Tomorrow. Well, what if it's 70 years? What if it's that? Do you understand the good news of Jesus and what He has done and what He has endured and who He has called us to be enough to endure that 70 years and to trust Him in the midst of it? The future described in that passage is for their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. You know, that isn't necessarily about losing your job. A better translation is probably, In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. In other words, whatever your circumstances, good or bad, God is there. He is growing with you. He is walking with you through these things. The happy ending promised in Romans 8.28 is not just any good outcome. It's not just finding another job or selling your house for more than asking price. 
It's the ultimate ending where God brings all things together. That's what Jesus brings about with his birth and his death and his resurrection. That he is going to bring all these things about. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How often do people quote that verse? Oh, I can do all things. Paul is here talking about circumstances. The things that we would say cause us stress. Paul is saying, whatever circumstance I am in, I have learned to be content, whether I'm rich or poor, hungry or well-fed, in prison or not in prison. Paul is not saying, I can achieve anything. What Paul is saying is, with Jesus, I can endure anything. And this included for him prison. This is why the scriptures constantly remind us who we are meant to be in Jesus. That becomes our identity and our hope. Less stress doesn't come from a great spa day or getting rid of depressed friends or making more money. I think they could help, right? But less stress comes when you realize your life is not about you. Your life is meant to be found in who Jesus is. It's about God and His glory and not our own. When we live our lives for His glory first, everything begins to come in line. This is when we say, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Why does He strengthen us? Why? Because he has called us his children. He has promised to be with us. And he wants us to see where our focus should be, even in the hard and stressful times of our lives. Our focus is meant to be on the gospel, the good news that Jesus has redeemed all things, even us. That Jesus is going to make all things new, including us. When we look at the scriptures today, we see Joseph and Mary as these godly people. In that day, that's not how their neighbors saw them. And it caused them lots of stress. But Mary and Joseph trusted God's promises their whole lives. And I'm sure it wasn't easy, but their focus was where it should be. Their focus is where our focus should be. The author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And I would say, as believers in Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, we need to be those who stop with all the pithy little Christian slogans and simply come back to understanding what the gospel is. That our great God came on a rescue mission to rescue us because we were so lost. God blessing us does not mean we get everything we want. God blessing us means that He came in the person of Jesus to take away our sin and restore relationship with Him again. The gospel is the good news of all that God did to rescue and to save us. As this is what we focus on. And when you have stress that overwhelms your life, when you turn around you begin to focus your life upon who Jesus is, stress, it's not, it's not that it all goes away but it becomes in more and better perspective so we can live how He is calling us to live because our focus is where it's supposed to be. This is why every week we come to communion. Uh, The communion tables are in a little different places than they used to be. There's two in the front and there's one bigger one in the back and I think there's one in the foyer. We come to communion because it's a reminder that God is the one who has rescued and saved us. And so you get up and you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds us of the blood that was shed for you and me. That he brought us back into relationship with him again. It's meant to refocus us as we lay everything down at his feet. So we would be a people who love and serve and honor him. Because we remember what he first did to rescue and save us. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There will be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today where your life is stressed out. You have all these, and you just don't know what to do with them, and you would love to talk to somebody and have somebody pray with you. They would love to pray with you. They would love to walk with you and talk with you about some of the things that you're going through. Thanks. We got stairs, by the way. It's nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> ah, break the momentum. Here we go.
So there's people to pray with you uh, in, in the back. There's offering boxes on the side wall. Uh, there's two here. There's going to be one uh, there after this week, and there's one in the back by the double doors. We, at Element, we don't pass the plate. We don't. Our, our giving is a response to what God has first done to us, and we understand His first giving to us, His rescuing and redeeming and reminding us who we are. So don't pass the plate. It's a response to actually have to get up and actually give. Uh, just like communion, uh, just like prayer, I want someone to pray with you. And, and then as we kind of come to the end today, there's going to be uh, food and stuff outside. Grab some to eat. Meet some other people. Grab some of the sermon notes, and then as you read through them, maybe ask one another some of the questions. Maybe your family this week, or maybe your gospel community or a friend this week. Kind of talk through some of those things. What things in your life bring you stress? What, in what ways does that affect your family or your job life or your neighborhood or the people around you? And how do you think could a better refocusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done begin to refocus us into who Jesus is calling us to be? How we can live every single day with our focus where it is meant to be. Because our great God is good. He is good. And he has called us into his family and has done everything to make that possible. Because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of the goodness of who you are day by day by day. Father, remind us that your goodness and love of us does not change. It's our wavering focus so often is the thing that seems to change. So have your spirit speak deeply into our hearts and souls today and draw us back to the place where we understand who you are and what you have done that we understand that you first loved us and that we get to love because you first loved us. Teach us in the midst of jobs and work situations and families that come to visit that when stress wants to overwhelm us and we want to respond poorly that we would take a step back we would understand who you are and what you've done to save us. And that would in turn change how we see the world and change how we see those around us, especially the people that drive us crazy. And we would then begin to live out the good news of who you are in their lives. The entire world would know the graciousness of a God who has come to rescue and redeem and save lost people. Teach us to begin to love you because you have first loved us. To just understand that great love so we would love you back. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.